Father, we ask you to give us eyes to see what you would have to reveal to us, ears to hear what you would have to say to us, and the courage and power to respond accordingly. We thank you for Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Will you recognize Jesus when you see him? There's a telling scene in Matthew's royal, more commonly, but probably less accurately referred to as triumphant entry. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on top of a donkey with a colt beside him. The Galilean crowds are surrounding him, in front of him, and behind him. They're laying down branches, exclaiming praise from the royal messianic Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as this crowd enters Jerusalem, you can imagine it would have caused some commotion, certainly would have garnered some attention. Matthew says, quote, the whole city was stirred up. And the reaction from those in Jerusalem was, who is this? You see, they didn't recognize him. And so the Galilean crowds respond, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now Matthew, like all of the gospel writers, is a literary genius. And while this scene is certainly historical, it's not only historical. It's also very carefully crafted. Matthew is bringing together themes and narratives, little streams and tributaries that he has been building from the very beginning, and eventually they all coalesce and flow together at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, culminating in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and commission. And while it's impossible to give necessary attention to all those little clues, all those little streams Matthew's working in, One in particular is especially revealing to what is happening upon Jesus' entry. And it's to that we turn this morning. Will you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip to verses 10 through 14. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip to verses 10 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest In the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now to verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, prior to this, in chapter 17, there's an issue raised by the Pharisees' IRS about Jesus paying his temple tax. And Peter is talking with Jesus about it, and Jesus asks Peter, Peter, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And the obvious answer, and to which Peter replies is, uh, from others. And, by the way, not much has changed. And then Jesus, in a very evocative sentence made all the more interesting because he's the one saying it, he replies, then the sons are free. Now Jesus then resolves the situation in a pretty wild way, but nevertheless resolves it. He tells Peter to go fishing, and the fish he's going to catch in his mouth will be enough money to pay for Jesus and Peter. But that sentence, though, then the sons are free, gets the disciples thinking, and they start making the connections. So, If in a kingdom the sons are free, well, that means they must have a special status, a certain sort of authority, okay? And Jesus, he's the Messiah ushering in the kingdom of God. Well, we're his disciples. Well, that means we're the sons. So that must mean we have that special status and authority. Ooh, ooh, Jesus. And here we come to chapter 18, verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I can say with confidence that whatever list of options the disciples thought could be possible answers to that question, Jesus' actual answer was not one of them. Because he pulls a child next to them and gives them, as R.T. France in his masterful commentary on Matthew says, a solemn warning. In verse 3, he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here are the disciples licking their chops, asking what is close to a rhetorical question, thinking themselves the greatest about who's going to be the best in the kingdom. And Jesus not only tells them, you must become like this child, which is already a curveball in itself, but then says, and unless you do, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the disciples who he's talking to. Humility. That's one stream that Matthew's got going through his book, running all the way through to his royal entry. And humility, far from something, something to laugh at nonchalantly as lacking in our life, oh, shucks, yeah, not humble like I should be, something I need to improve on. It's not something to be improved on. And by that phrase, we usually mean forget by tomorrow. It's something to fall on our knees and repent of. Chief among those people, me. Jesus says you must turn and become or you will never enter 
Jesus moves humility from the work of sanctification to an entry requirement. And if that offends you, your theological sensibilities and shocks you, then Jesus' words have had their desired effect. You can take it up with him. This is what he told his disciples who assumed of all people, they were already in the kingdom. They were not stuck on that question. They had already moved to the question of what sort of status they were going to have in that kingdom. And as to that question, who's the greatest? The greatest is the anonymous child. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be sure, on the one hand, Jesus is talking about children. It's a child he used as the object lesson. But on the other hand, the broader people Jesus is speaking of, of whom the child represents, are these little ones, as Jesus will say in verse 6. Sometimes he called his disciples, oh, you little ones. What Jesus will later call in chapter 25, the least of these. Children were considered insignificant, unfortunately, and especially little girls. And near the absolute bottom of the social status ladder. But so were the poor the neglected, the diseased, the oppressed, the foreigner, all of whom Jesus had been associating with since the beginning of his ministry. Jesus has all of them in view when he brings a child in front of them. And this helps clarify what Jesus means when he says, whoever humbles himself like this child. Because we hear, oh, whoever humbles himself, well, that must be some sort of mental exercise I need to do about my own sort of what I think about myself. It's not so much a mental exercise as it is about comparative status. Because the child would have been nothing compared to everybody else. France, again, in his commentary, so he translates this verse as the following. And so it is that anyone who will take the lowly position of this child who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is not some one-off statement right here. This matches with plenty of other elements of Jesus' life and message. The first will be last. The last will be first. Whoever would be the greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now the irony is not lost on me. That it's a bit humorous to be behind a pulpit... As the sole message bearer this morning, as someone called to be a pastor, preaching about Jesus' challenge to seek a lowly status, to be the servant, to not just humble oneself, it's much more to humiliate oneself. That gets closer to what Jesus is saying. So how does that match with a position that inherently, with any position that inherently has leadership as part of it? Well, I think we can say that positions in leadership are not mutually exclusive from Jesus' words here. But we can also say that Jesus' life and message are an extreme challenge to how we use that leadership, how we view ourselves, how we treat others, how we treat those who, quote-unquote, work for us. Is that an okay phrase? Would Jesus use that phrase? I, I don't know. 
I don't propose to have the answer for all of these, but this challenge should be in our mind in nearly every decision that we make. It should make us uncomfortable, and if it does, we're hearing it correctly. If we're not uncomfortable, we probably need to meditate on it a little bit longer. This goes much beyond the congested freeway of literature trumpeting servant leadership as some buzzword. Jesus has in mind crucifixion for the world, not giving up your parking spot. The paradox, though, is it's at that status, that sort of humility, where one is the greatest. There's the other stream. Humility is one stream. The least as the greatest There's another stream. And what brings these together, however, is what comes next in verse 5. And anyone who welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Again, as with before, Jesus' use of one such child could also be read one such as a child. It's bigger than just, oh, become like this little child. It's people like this child, who this child represents. Indeed, you can see the similarity in statements here in chapter 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then later in chapter 25, as you did it to one of the least of these, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Whatever you did for the least of these, that you did to me. Do you see the move that Jesus is making This isn't a lesson in social justice, though it includes that. This isn't a lesson in charity, though it includes that too. It's a lesson in Christology. This gets at the fundamental question of who is Jesus? Receive them, receive me. That what you did for the least of these, you did it to and for me. That's why Jesus can say that to embrace lowliness, to humble oneself, is to enter the kingdom. Why would he make such a statement? Is he just concerned for everyone? No, because it's precisely what he did. In being born, A, God as a baby. In being born, likely, in a cave, in a food trough. Associating with those on the fringes of society, the blind, the leper, the lame, not having a home. He told his disciples, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And eventually, crucifixion, the most humiliating form of punishment that the Roman government could dole out, and then he died. That is the capital W way of Jesus. And this is also why Jesus can say, That one such as a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because who's actually the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What's the Sunday school answer? If you don't know anything, just always say this one word. Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. But the way he lived that out is as the least. But the paradox remains true. Don't kid yourself. Though he humbled himself in birth, in life, and in death, he was exalted in resurrection. 
as the sovereign Lord of the universe, head of all rule and authority, redeeming all of creation, ushering in the kingdom of God, reconciling and giving new life to all who would follow him, serving at the right hand of God, to come to judge the living and the dead, to when it's all said and done, give it over to the Father, where there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more death, for the dwelling place of God will be with humankind, for the former things will have passed away. The last will be first. The humbled will be exalted. And we talk about wanting to be more like Jesus. I just wish I was more like Jesus. This is the way. And much is at stake. Because Jesus' point is if you don't humble yourselves and recognize me in the faces of one such as a child, if you don't receive them, you won't recognize this kingdom. You certainly won't be the greatest. And most of all, you won't recognize me. Which brings us back to his royal entry in Jerusalem. Humility, one stream. The least is the greatest, another stream. The reception of the least as the reception of Jesus, another stream. All coming together with Jesus on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. Because who is it that recognizes Jesus? The crowds, and specifically the Galilean crowds, those who had come with Jesus. And to understand the significance of that, you have to understand the dynamic between Judeans, those in Jerusalem, and Galileans. Galileans, close to Samaritans, you had to, Galilee, you had to come through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. They were considered foreigners, they had a peculiar accent. France says, as recognizable as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. They were considered lax and inferior to the more sophisticated culture and purer form of Judaism and the people of Judea. Except about that, who is it that did not recognize Jesus? In chapter 21, verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Not, oh, the Messiah's here. Who is this? The most religious people in town were the very people who didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. And the contrast is even more stark after this episode. When Jesus goes into the temple... And it says, this is beginning in verse 14 in chapter 21. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, there they are again, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. There it is. The juxtaposition right next to one another. The Galileans, oh, those, for, those foreigners, people who, oh, they're not as good a Jews as we are. The lame, the most ironic, the blind, children, infants, nursing babies, the least, the humble, the little ones, they're all square on who Jesus is. And the chief priests and scribes, the pastors and scholars are indignant at their praise. They have no idea. They didn't recognize him. And why not? Why didn't they recognize him? 
Because that's not who the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah would be powerful. And by that they meant politically and militarily powerful. But it would be victory through strength. Restore the kingdom to Israel. Kick the Romans out from being in charge. Wield the sword mightily and assert force over any and all who would oppose. Is it any wonder that they believed the Messiah would be a lot like them? It was Voltaire who said, God made man in his image and man returned the favor. In comes Jesus, as Matthew says, quoting prophecy from Zechariah and Isaiah, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now the donkey echoed what Solomon wrote on. But some work animal, a colt. That was what manual labors had, not the Messiah. And anyway, this man's from Galilee, who are at best sort of Jews, and his ragtag bunch of followers surrounding him are foreigners and fishermen. It's no shock that their response was an indignant, who is this? Because Jesus and his followers, the people who did know who Jesus was, mind you, they were the very people they overlooked. They were nobodies. This was not the sophisticated elite crowd that the chief priests and scribes and Judeans associated with. But precisely because of that, because they didn't recognize Jesus in the least of these, they didn't recognize Jesus at all. That is what is at stake. And before we scoff and mock... At how, how could they be so wrong as 21st century armchair quarterbacks? We ought to take a look around. How much has changed? In an exercise that is convicting for myself, if all we had to go on about what Jesus looks like is your own patterns of life, your attitudes, your beliefs, your friends, who you spend time with, who you don't spend time with, who you give credit to, who you blame, who are your heroes, who do you value, what characteristics are a priority for you, what then would we expect Jesus to look like? Because of how, again, the most religious people in Jerusalem answered those very questions, they didn't recognize Jesus when they saw him. And the question begging to be asked is, will you recognize Jesus when you see him? Because what if he looks like the people coming in your office to clean as you leave? What if he looks like the cashiers you encounter weekly? What if he looks like the person who greets you in the numerous offices that you go What if he looks like the men and women organizing the produce at the grocery store? What if he looks like the men and women who picked that produce? What if he looks like the city sanitation workers picking up your trash? What if he looks like the young girl taking your order after church today? I want to be clear. What I'm not suggesting is that above some certain socioeconomic level, 
one sort of ceases to be a witness of Jesus in life. I don't think Scripture suggests that at all. That's not the point. It's that our culture is already on the lookout for those who have succeeded and triumphed as heroes to emulate, people to respect. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do that. Just that we shouldn't only do that. Because who's getting overlooked in the meantime? And if much of our answer is, I don't know, exactly. It doesn't cross our mind because it's not really important. We don't know because we don't think about it, about them. There is is no it. The little ones, the least of these, the very people Jesus said their angels in heaven always see the face of our Father. Just let that marinate for a little bit. The very people who God leaves the 99 to doggedly pursue and rejoices when he brings her back. The very people who Jesus said, receive them, receive me. And I should add... For those who may feel insignificant and of little worth, left out to dry by the world, it's just as easy to buy into the derogatory status that much of our world projects onto you. And what I hope you see in this, though, is Jesus in your mirror. That's how much Jesus loves you. The paradox is that in the kingdom of God, though we're all called to be the least, no one is the least, because the least is the greatest. But for all, when Jesus makes his numerous royal entries in your life, in the many places you go, perhaps in your mirror, will you recognize him when you see him? Will you be stirred up, bewildered? Who is this? Or will you be the one to see and say, this is the prophet Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we admit that your son's words are a challenge to us. Much of what we do, we don't mean maliciously, we just don't think about it, but that's precisely the problem, and we need your help. Open our eyes to the faces of your son all around us that we just never see. Reveal yourself to us in ways we've never thought. And thank you that when we feel like the least of these, when we are the least of these, when the world doesn't have an ounce of care for us, Father, you pursue us and bring us back rejoicing. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.